Hello, my name is Steve Pretty. I am a musician and composer and performer from London. This is my show, Steve Pretty on the Origin of the Pieces. This is the show that tries to help you to hear and understand music in new ways. So welcome back to the podcast. It is a pleasure to be back with you. Um, thank you very much for all the lovely feedback uh, for the last show. We covered a lot of fascinating ground, I thought, last time. Uh, we looked at Mbanga, which I still can't pronounce after a lot of trying and a lot of help from my friend Claude Depper from South Africa, who gave us some fascinating insight into the world of Mbanga and township music in general. And also we had Tamar Osborne taking us through the saxophone, baritone saxophone, flute and tape delay which is really nice squelchy tones that were happening there a lot of people were enjoying that so if you haven't checked that out please do go back and have a listen i think you'll get lots out of it coming up on today's show we have got more guests still more guests really lucky to have had some fantastic guests on this uh, show so far and today is no exception um, at the end we're going to be talking to uh, my friend the comedian Andrew O'Neill um, about that amazing genre that I've been learning so much about in the last couple of weeks death grind and also I had a really interesting chat in my entertaining noises section with the brilliant Nicole Cassandra Smith, who is a wonderful vocalist who I've worked with quite a lot. And she was in the studio to talk about singing, talk about how singing works um, and demonstrate some techniques, some really interesting stuff with, through those binaural microphones so you can get inside the head of a singer in multiple ways. So stay tuned for that. First, I wanted to talk about something very dear to my heart, and that is Remembrance Sunday. Now, for those of you living in different parts of the world or who might not know about this, uh, in the UK on the 11th of November, we commemorate people who have lost their lives in war. So on the 11th of November, Armistice Day in the uh, First World War, I believe. So people wear poppies as a symbol of remembrance. And there is a service of remembrance in most churches and war memorials around the UK. As a musician, especially doing the sort of music that I do, it's relatively rare that I get to participate in um, a kind of community event like this. I mean, sometimes I have played for funerals and things like that. That can be uh, very moving. Um, but this is a, a something bigger than that, if you like. This is a nationwide recognition of the people who have uh, lost their lives in wars. And particularly at the moment, of course, with so many dreadful wars going on around the world um, it feels very close to home but as a trumpet player I have the rare privilege to be able to participate in some of these ceremonies and so for many years now since I was a kid really learning the trumpet I have been able to uh, play at services of remembrance in churches or in hospitals or for the British Legion or whoever it might be and it's I always find it profoundly moving um, a really a really amazing thing to be able to do to be able to be a small part of um yeah and it's something that i don't get to do very much in the rest of my career and so for the last couple of years i have been part of a really lovely service uh, in stoke newington in a place called abney park cemetery in northeast london um and this is a an amazing very historic cemetery it's been around for a good couple of hundred years um and a lot lot of 
lot of interesting people buried there, including William Booth, the uh, founder of the Salvation Army, amongst many other interesting figures. Um, and it's just a, I find it a really beautiful place and a very evocative place, uh, especially on a wet November morning, as it was this year. And to be honest, normally is. I find that kind of drizzly, damp, cold November morning fits the the mood of remembrance services quite well because it's in abney park it's the service is a bit different so in the past i've played for very traditional services with the british legion and people like that um, military folk involved this is not that most of the people there wear white poppies for peace rather than red poppies which is what people wear otherwise normally a couple of lovely choirs there you can hear them singing under me now. Really lovely ceremony, um, really lovely service, with very much a community element, but of course because the community is full of artists, writers, performers, musicians, comedians, that sort of thing, there's a lot of very interesting people there and a lot of very interesting people involved. So, um, yes. Yeah, it was a really great, great uh, event and it felt very respectful, but also uh, with that kind of dissent that uh, Stoke Newington is known for. So yeah, I thought it would just be interesting to quickly touch on this association of brass instruments and the military, and specifically these bugle calls, which signify the two minutes silence. So firstly, we have the what's called the last post, which is the one that people know best, perhaps. It goes like this. And then there's a, that signifies the start of a two-minute silence, in which time people uh, reflect on war and remember uh, the dead and all of that stuff. And then at the end of the two-minute silence, we have uh, another military call, which is called Reveille, which I believe is the military call that used to be played to wake up soldiers in a camp the next morning. So the idea is to sort of wake everyone up from their, their slumber, I think. And that goes like this. being a, a very moving occasion and a really lovely thing uh, thank you to Abney Park Cemetery for having me along um, it, I also thought it might be an interesting opportunity to examine a bit of music theory um, if you may remember this segment from previous shows this is where I know that many people understandably are scared of music theory or digging too deep into the uh, you know the nuts and bolts of music but this is a good opportunity to just sort of demystify a few bits so so we're going to talk about harmonics today and that is something that um, Tamar touched on last time I think we've touched on in previous shows relating to the flute and the saxophone and that kind of thing and the shell in fact in the first episode but really what this is is when you play a note on a trumpet or any brass instrument you can then get what's called the next harmonic up 
right? And that means that you're speeding up the air. You're not moving anything apart from the speed of the air. You're not pushing any valves down. You're not moving any slides. You're not doing anything other than speeding the air up. So you're working with the natural resonance of the instrument, the natural physics of the instrument, and just finding where that note kind of pops out. And it pops out here. And then the next one that pops out is here. And then the next one that pops out is here. And the next one here. Next one here. And so on. Now you might have noticed that as we went through each of those notes, the gap between the first note and the second note we played, so this one and this one, was fairly large. The gap between the second and third notes, second and third harmonics, bit smaller between the third and fourth ones, bit smaller again, fourth and fifth, smaller, and so on, smaller, 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 until right at the very top end we can play almost a whole scale. Now, to be clear, just to reiterate, I'm not pushing any vowels down on the trumpet when I'm doing this. This can be done on any brass instrument. It's to do with the way the physics of a brass instrument, or indeed uh, a shell, as I demonstrated in the first episode, um, or in fact anything. You could do it with a, a coil of hose and a funnel and a trumpet mouthpiece. You can get the same thing, this harmonic series. It's called the harmonic series. And that means that we can play the whole of the last post and Ravelli on a bugle with no vowels, just by changing the speed of the air. So, all the trumpet is, is the same principle, but with these three valves. You'll be familiar with the three buttons that you push down. Um, those are valves that are connected to other small bits of tubing. And so when you push one down, it just sends the air through those extra little bits of tubing and creates, if you like, a whole other bugle. So a whole other bugle here, a whole other bugle here, a whole other bugle here and then combinations, and so that you can then combine them and get all of the notes in what we call the chromatic scale, so if you like, all of the black and white notes on the keyboard. But the, really, that's done through a very clever piece of design that just connects up lots of different bugles. So it's like having 20 different bugles in one that you can just switch between, but of course you're doing that just with these three buttons, the valves. So there we are, a little bit of music theory in for uh, Remembrance Day. You might have also heard that in the last post I played, uh, I split one note. Now what that means is I went for a note and I didn't quite get it, I missed and that's because it's, well, frankly, Remembrance Day is a terrifying time for trumpet players and buglers because it's cold, so the instrument doesn't respond very well when it's cold. You're outside, it's the middle of November, it's relatively early in the morning. Okay, I mean, 11 is not early, but, you know, for, for a lot of musicians, it's earlier than you would normally do a gig, especially not in freezing temperatures. It's very high pressure, especially for the military guys who do it, you know, on TV and for royalty and for to honour their fallen comrades. The pressure for those guys must be absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. And in fact, I, I do have worked with some military musicians. I've got some, uh, some friends who are military musicians, so I'll be talking to those guys in future episodes about some of those pressures. But it's very easy to miss, and that's because you're doing it all just with your lips. And so I managed to only, in inverted commas, split one. It's quite bad split. <laughs> and it's always, you feel terrible at the time, but yeah, people understand it's the way it goes. Um, but yeah, it can be a terrifying moment. So please do sympathise with anyone you see playing last post who might um, split a note, miss a note, or slightly fluff it. It is a very hard thing to do, even though the piece itself is not that challenging. 
the circumstances mean that it is a major challenge and quite a big stress for trumpet players and bugle players alike. So, there we are. Remembrance Day and harmonics. That's how we're kicking off the show today. All right, on we go. So, we are on to the entertaining noises section of the show. Now, you may remember that normally for this section, I ask people to put headphones on if you can. If you can listen to this with headphones, then so much the better, because this is recorded using binaural microphones, which means the little microphones that go inside the ears of my guest, and they pick up everything that my guest hears from their perspective, if that makes sense. So, today, we have a fantastic guest in the shape of Nicole Cassandra-Smith. Now, Nicole and I have worked together on NOF for many years. We did shows together in Edinburgh for a long time. Uh, she is in a, in a band that is, I think, mainly now sort of semi-retired, but a really great blues band called The Blues Water, who did a history of the blues up there, which I was involved with for a number of years. And Nicole is also a f- fantastic uh, performer and singer in her own right. She released her debut album um, earlier this year, which had lots of nice plays on Radio 6 Music here in the UK and uh, lots of other places. And she's just a phenomenal singer and a really great collaborator as well. She and I have written some music together. There's a collaboration with her coming up that I can't talk about quite yet, but is very, very exciting indeed and will be public soon. So look out for that. But meanwhile, here is Nicole donning those little binaural mics in the studio. So headphones on if you can. If you can't, don't worry. It'll be fine. So these are the little binaural mics. Could you introduce yourself? Okay. (laughs) My name is Nicole uh, Smith. I'm a singer. I'm based in Edinburgh. And um, I started out singing a lot of blues, but basically sing anything I can, I can get to sing on. But you don't sound like you're from Edinburgh. So no, <laughs> yes. You probably get that a lot. So it's a fun, a fun question. I, I grew up in in Jakarta, in Indonesia, and then in in Stockholm, Sweden, and then I've been in Scotland for the last eleven years now. So you've got that kind of international accent, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I went to international schools. Yeah. When, when I meet other international school children, we always recognise each other. Anyway, we've had a nice day in the studio. Very we've much. We've been doing uh, some new music. Very exciting, sounding really nice. We worked together in Edinburgh doing a blues show. That's how we met, right? Yes, at um, the Fringe. At the Fringe. And so you're, you're a big blues aficionado. Yeah, I, I wasn't really. Um, my my first blues album ever was the The Simpsons Sing the Blues. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's how I got introduced to blues, really. And then when I moved to Edinburgh, I got to know um, the the guys in the Blues Water, and they're the ones that actually said, uh, you know, your voice would suit this very mm. well. Got got inspired by a lot of the women, the old like blues singers, blues shouters, and then then learned a lot about them. And I think because the whole genre or the idea of blues is about feeling, and that's mainly where I sing from. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The voice is extremely well suited to that stuff. But you you were saying you're also, I mean, you're obviously a fantastic singer, but also you're saying you're a bit of a singing nerd, which I suppose we all have to be as musicians. Yeah, because you have. I think you have to really, really love your instrument or whatever it is um you know your 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 tools <laughs> um to properly get into it to mm. really get very good um at it as well and looking back uh kind of from childhood it seems obvious that I would be a singer now but I didn't I didn't think I was going to be mm. a singer it wasn't a career option that you know 
lots of the adults were <laughs> telling yeah. me that yeah, yeah, that you yeah. could do, but but I but I sang all the time. I just mm. my parents had music all the time in the house, um, you know, and and I, I would know, learn songs. Um, and my my dad used to say that I would be able to guess songs on the radio, like from the just the intro. Like I'd get really good at I know this song, this song. Um, so I was constantly singing, and I have a couple of cassette tapes that that I, that I saved, which is the earliest uh, I guess evidence of my songwriting. Um, and it would have been eight or nine. I think, uh, and then uh, there were probably uh, the cu first couple songs. I was just running around with this my first Sony tape recorder, um, coming up with tunes. And uh, um, the two the two songs that are on those cassette tapes are "Misery" and "Life Is So Confusing." <laughs> those those are my two first songs ever <laughs> recorded. Misery um, was your first song. Mi you I know misery. Wow. And I, I only recently remembered that I made two versions of it too, like one in English, one in Indonesian. Wow. <laughs> As well. Uh, but uh, yeah, I would, I just would be singing, even if nobody was listening to me or pay me or any, I just would be singing all the time. Yeah. I think that's why I think I'm like a singing nerd because I love singing so much, you know, so I might as well. I'm, I'm, I got lucky that, um, that I get paid for it yeah, sometimes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but to be honest, I'd be doing it anyway. <laughs> it just seemed like a very innate form of self-expression. Mm. Yeah. Obviously, with this show, I'm interested in where music came from, and you know, yeah. and uh, obviously we've got no kind of archaeological record in the way that we have for things like shells or bone flutes, which mm -hmm. we've talked about before. When it comes to singing, but um, we would have been singing for hundreds of thousands of years, right? No, I mean, it's obviously the, yeah. the oldest instrument, and I reckon it would be part of the kind of the storytelling of you know exactly. early. Yeah. Amen, yeah, and and I think the kind of connection that it has with with language is really is really interesting. And I mean, it's funny because I, as an instrumental musician mainly, I don't really often engage with lyrics very much. You yeah. know, I'm listening to I'm listening for the the tone of the voice, the sort of texture of the voice. Or but do you find that as well? Because you've got a whole other layer of things to think about, if you like, uh -huh. as a as a singer, because you've got the language as well. But singing wasn't always necessarily based around language you know you can what we were doing today writing a new song and the first time we went through it when you were just improvising yeah you just hummed you're just finding a, me a melody yeah so so that's that's sort of one layer and then obviously the lyrical layer is the other layer on top do you, do you think of those independently or do you think of them when you're writing a song or singing do you think of them I guess there's definitely the melody first, but in the in the back of my mind, I'd be uh, working on it almost subconsciously, maybe. Mm. In in my songwriting process, uh, I'd like to see what organically comes out, almost like just trust your brain and and mm. and your your own voice, your body to produce something, and then you know, for some reason, particular noises or consonants or maybe one word or two would come out while you're doing the first stages of finding a melody. Yeah. And then I would use that as the core because mm -hmm. I just think, well, this came out for some reason. Yeah. Your brain threw this out. Yeah. So you can, and that's a great starting point to write the yeah. rest of the lyrics. And I, mean, I think as when I'm improvising or even playing uh, trumpet or, or other instruments, you're trying to it's still about storytelling, even though you're not using lyrics. Yeah. So when you're using lyrics, you've got this whole like, extra layer. But really, even if you're just humming, or even if you're playing the trumpet or clarinet or whatever else, 
you're still kind of telling some sort of story or creating a mood. A lot of the stuff we've been working on, I would yeah. say, has been quite kind of not so much about telling a story so much as creating a mood or an atmosphere, right? Yeah, I think I think the core of of all of it is always you're conveying an emotion mm. of sorts, and yeah. I think that's why people understand music, you know, through despite the words or the languages mm. or anything, because you just touch on something. I mm. think, you know, because you're just, yeah, you're sending out feelings uh, and emotions and they don't necessarily have to be comprehensible. Yeah, they <laughs> don't know, have to be defined and they can be anxiety. quite open. I mean, I talked about it in a previous show, but where one of the things I think music can do more than almost anything else is to help us express our complicated human emotions because yes. it's pretty rare that, that we're just happy or just sad or just just one thing or the other is was normally somewhere in between or a bit mm -hmm. of both and and that's words aren't always the best way of totally of describing those feelings and so so sometimes even just a sound can be but then of course once you add lyrics in as well particularly more poetic abstract lyrics which yeah is, you know that's why uh, songwriting and poetry are so closely linked isn't it because there's they're quite ambiguous a lot of the time in the best best cases and so it leaves quite a lot up to the listener and the audience yeah it's tricky with, with lyrics i think it's that you want to find that perfect balance between uh, the words being open enough mm. kind of vague uh for people to infer their own you know mm. ideas um uh, around it but still specific enough that it's not just nonsense, yeah, yeah, <laughs> essentially. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, certainly, I, I think sometimes when if I'm playing and I'm trying to put myself in a in a in a particular frame of mind or mood, I yeah I might conjure up a an image of, mm -hmm. of something, or, or uh, even if it's just like a a sunset or the sea or something, you know, something, yeah. something that's quite abstract and open. Yeah. That you can kind of put yourself inside that, and I, th I do really think that helps to communicate it within to an audience, you know, that feeling. I mean, cause we, so we're talking about the kind of technical aspects of singing. Sure. So this section of the show is called Entertaining Noises. So, like, we just mm -hmm. talked about, is there any way you can demonstrate the different parts of the voice? The, yeah. Things like head voice and chest voice and, you know, all of those sorts of things. When you're singing properly and um, in a way that you're not going to ruin or tire your voice, every part of your body is working um, and it's almost like you have to open up of your whole like pathway um but uh, yeah head voice is sort of i guess sort of the high like the top range which it, for me anyway it just feels like you're not taking air from too far down perhaps um the top range is also usually uh, for me it's the one that disappears first when i'm tired mm -hmm. so this is like i'm not taking any any breath from down like my, my stomach or diaphragm um that's kind of what it sounds like and then if you almost let your bottom drop and open so you, you're able to have so much more volume mm. and, and project because you're singing like almost you know even below your 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 stomach. It's yeah, you're kind of great. Well, it's interesting because you you yeah, I actually that, you, you opened you, yeah, you, actually you opened across your legs <laughs> yeah, and like sat up and and you could see your stomach working to project. I, and I and I would um, kind of advise people, I guess, if they're practicing singing, mm. to do that. You want you want to actually even like just put your hand on your 
stomach and see how it moves, you know? But the kind of thing where once you stop doing that and you let your body inhale passively, because that's just what we naturally do anyway. And I've uh, noticed that when you're singing, you kind of want to do that as well. You want to let your body naturally do what it needs yeah. to do and it actually makes it better then you're not ex you're not extending too much well you're not, you're not introducing too much tension yeah exactly. no exactly <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, well, it's sort of controlling it but you want well one of the reasons you practice is to is to get that sense uh that it just comes naturally because it's uh, yeah it's, it's to try and give yourself the tools to be able to not think about it you think about it in practice and then you stop thinking about it when you're um i recently discovered the, the whistle tone which i don't know if that counts as a yeah, head yeah, yeah. voice, but that is like, it feels like the air is coming out of your nostrils in this weird way. Can you, can you demonstrate? <laughs> I don't know if I can, if I can I do it right now. it's really hard to be put in the spot. Um, I, um, I think I can do this. Like that. That's amazing. I'm not saying that's incredible. <laughs> so I, I learned that I could wow. do that maybe a few a couple of years ago, um, and then I've not practiced it so much. But I uh, I can't. I don't think I can sing words through that. Yeah. Uh, just well, because it really, it's a nostril thing. Yeah, you really. I mean, it didn't look like you were singing at all. If that makes sense. No. Yeah. Like, it feels like it's coming out of your yeah. eyeballs at yeah, the yeah, same yeah. time. Um, and I think I was practicing it with that uh, Snow White song, um, which is like. I'm wishing for the one I love to find me today. And then she goes really high. <laughs> I'm not super warmed up, but yeah, um, if you practice it, then it, can, it actually can sound really good. <laughs> wow. It sounded really good already. Yeah, so what, I thought maybe to demonstrate some of that well, okay. because the other the other part of the equation as a singer as well as the sort of singer that, that you are and the the, the music that you do mm. is very related to the microphone right and obviously that's yes. not the case for an opera singer uh, or for a classical singer who mainly don't use microphones for amplification they might use them obviously mm -hmm. to record but um and i think it's often overlooked yeah it's well it's definitely part of the the learning experience um, you know, like when I s started out singing, I was just doing like acoustic gigs with friends. Uh, but when you start playing with a loud blues band <laughs> with like several guitarists mm. and horns, I think you would pick it up naturally, but it is, um, and I think this is a really important part of, of learning to sing or practicing is, is, is listening. Your ear really has to be very good. You need to know what you sound like. Mm -hmm. Um, exactly how it sounds like to other people mm. uh, that's part of the practice and I think so with the mic with the mic t technique that's where it comes in Stop. and generally you, you see it in kind of in younger um, or like but people are just starting out performing um, you can tell from the mm -hmm. from the mic technique and it, it just it, it just practice I don't think you can you can be good at it immediately if you know how you sound like you know your volumes then yeah, you're just gonna know the the you know how far you need to be with the mic, how close, and also don't um, 
if you have to, if you have to like swallow the microphone almost, then you're then then you can't clearly you can't hear yourself, and you're trying to be as close as possible, and you should you shouldn't need to, um, and you also shouldn't need to be you know too far, but yeah, it's just learning the timings to pull back when you're if you have a holding a long note and it gets louder and just practice, isn't it? But also it's, it's understanding I think that a mic isn't just there to make you heard. It obviously is a way of amplifying your voice, but also it's a it's a tonal device, right? You can change the yeah. the, the the tone of your voice uh, to a degree with how how far you are from the microphone, and uh, and certainly for some microphones, the closer you go, the more bass you get, right? So mm. so so there's a way that a lot of um, singers and, and instrumentalists, I certainly use that. Um, on the trumpet on stage if I go closer you get a thing called the proximity effect and you get a lot more sort of bass bass end mm -hmm. and so yeah so singers you can really exploit some of that stuff yeah I think I think like like yeah it's, you kind of you make it as part of your instrument mm. the mic so it's like you integrate it as much as possible to um, your singing mm -hmm. Bing, Bing Crosby the uh, this kind of original crooner the, that crooning wasn't possible with a big band behind you you, you yeah. couldn't do that because your voice won't travel your voice won't, won't, yeah so you, obviously you couldn't do it without any amplification at all but you also with early mics and things and you could just couldn't you couldn't yeah sing in that style so the invention of the microphone and, and the development of the technology meant that a whole genre was kind of invented a whole uh, genre and a whole kind of score of singers and yeah. Bing Crosby had just the perfect voice for that and and by like the the opposite of that would be the old, you know, like Bessie Smith and yeah. and Maya Rainey, they they had to sing unamplified. That's yeah. why those blues singers were called blues shouters because they had to sing over a loud band. In it. so when you listen to um, Maya Rainey's records, she can she It's not like she sounds funny, but I am very aware that that she would would have probably sounded very different live mm -hmm. because it was suddenly a very you know then she couldn't actually project yeah. because the the microphones then wouldn't be able, yeah. able to take uh her volume I yeah think. just going back to that bing crosby thing it made me think of it um, sorry it's a bit of a, a funny name drop but um honey connery band uh did a, a session with um jamie cullum at made available a few years ago and it, it made me think of it because it was the studio where bing crosby oh wow recorded i think his last record uh -huh. he we were all in the same room which is uh, for those who don't know, often you record in recording studios, you record in separate rooms so that you can combine signals afterwards and you can mix it more easily and stuff. But it's mm. more fun to do it all in one room, it's yeah, a lot yeah, more yeah. risky. But but trying to do that with a singer and a nine piece brass band with two drummers in it is quite challenging. Yeah. But I, it was really interesting because, particularly because it was in that room uh, where Bing Crosby had recorded, uh, it, was, it was a real lesson in mic technique because we were doing this ballad actually. You kind of couldn't really tell in the room if it was any good. You're like, what's good? Is this going to be all right? Like, we can't hear it at all. And sure enough, we went into the to listen back to what we just recorded, and it was re it was amazing. Like he, he oh. was just his mic technique was just yeah. Made, made know exactly the, what to yeah, do. Yeah, he knew exactly what to do. Backed off when he needed to move closer when he needed to to get to project the to be heard, but also to use the mic as a creative tool mm -hmm. for this wall of noise from yeah. brass yeah, and, yeah. and, and two drums.
I just thought it might be quite an interesting experiment if you wouldn't mind just demonstrating going from the whistle tone to the head voice to the belt and, and moving in and out of the mic in, in different ways. possibilities thank you very much thank you thanks for having me anything to plug you got your record came at your fantastic solo record yeah my record is out on spotify and apple music and all that do you want to give us a name of the it's called third in line and um it's under sort of my solo full name is nicole cassandra smith um because my parents named me after a tragic greek lady thank you Oh, and I'm going to be at Celtic Connections on oh, yeah. 26th of January, which is a while still, but I think tickets are already on sale. So Great, oh, that'll be fun. Um, you can find me there as well. Lovely. Thanks very much. Thank you. So we come to the section of the show called the Genre Tombola. Now, if this is your first time listening to the show, this is the section where every episode I look at a completely different genre as chosen by a random list picker of the 1,300 genres listed on Wikipedia. So I feed the 1,300 genres into a list picker, it picks a completely random one, and I look at that genre in the following show. So I've spent the last two weeks since the last episode uh, came out listening to nothing but Death Grind. That's right, Death Grind. And I knew next to nothing about that, and so when I started looking into it, it occurred to me that there was one person I knew who would be able to help me out. And they were very kind and gave up lots of their time to talk to me this week about this genre and to help me uh, make some music in the genre as well, as you'll hear shortly. So my guest for this episode is the one and only Andrew O'Neill. Now, Andrew is a really fantastic comedian and musician and author. They've written a book called The History of Heavy Metal, which is uh, based on a show of the same name. And also, Andrew was in a band for a long time called The Men Who Will Not Be Blamed For Nothing, who I've shared a bill with over the years, who were absolutely phenomenal live. A great band, great songs, great fun. So, without further ado, here's my guest, Andrew O'Neill. 
so 1300 genres and i put it into a random list picker each each uh, episode okay. and this right. this episode it picked death grind mm-hmm. <laughs> and i thought i know just the person to talk to about uh about <laughs> death hot, grind. heavy metal comedy hotline <laughs> exactly so you might you might be on speed dial for future episodes by the way cool. uh, so um yeah so just if you wouldn't mind for the sake of the show introducing yourself and why i might have yeah. called you about death grind uh, my name is Andrew Neal. I'm a comedian and a musician and a metalhead. Um, and my pronouns are they then. And I wrote, I did a show years ago called A History of Heavy Metal. And then I wrote a book called A History of Heavy Metal. And as a result, I get an email every month from a different person moaning about the lack of inclusion of a different band. <laughs> <laughs> Metal is a, 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 a subgenre. But it's well, it's a genre of music, but it's also a, a community and it's a subculture, and it's something that has given me uh, gave me a massive sense of identity when I was a gender dysphoric, confused teenager, and then I was listening to um, you know Sepultura's <laughs> "We Who Are Not as Others," going, hmm, yeah, this is this is good. Yeah, so thanks very much. So this death grind right this uh, mm. now i know next to nothing well let's call it nothing about, about <laughs> metal um and it's i mean it's an enormously complex world right i mean as soon as you start digging into metal genres it seems like some of these genres only have about three bands that that make yeah. music in that, that <laughs> genre and so i sort of i started digging into death grind and i've been listening to a lot of <clears throat> death grind whilst doing admin this week uh which is which is quite did you do not, the admin quicker as a result it was yeah i think i did my typing speed got got quite got faster <laughs> um and my, my understanding of it is that it is it's a kind of fusion between death metal and grindcore is that roughly? yeah but but death metal and grindcore were already indistinguishable to the untrained ear anyway <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. so um <clears throat> so death metal they're both essentially the ultimate extension of guitar-based music trying to become its heavier so th- they come from they come from slightly two, two different places death metal just comes from heavy metal so you've got black sabbath who originated it they were the uh, sort of uh, amniotic fluid that became uh, or primordial <laughs> soup they had all the ingredients and then and then black sabbath were the first band um then you have uh, in the mid 70s judas priest who were the first band to detach heavy metal from its blues roots um and then you get uh, motorhead who a lot of people argue aren't a heavy metal band uh you get punk you get the new wave of british heavy metal and that's when heavy metal really really starts to sound completely like its own thing then very quickly you get thrash and some people see some people see death metal as as a development of thrash but i see thrash as a like a base camp stop off point <laughs> okay so death metal was all always going to happen um metallica pretty much um invented thrash malcolm dome the british journalist coined the term thrash metal thrash metal is extremely fast it has mm. it has the influence of punk and hardcore punk um it's fast it's kind of chuggy um with often political lyrics and then a band called possessed from san francisco did a demo called death metal and their first album seven churches is widely believed to be the first death metal album so black sabbath were influenced by horror films they wanted to make music that was frightening and also they expressed their kind of disillusion with the kind of hippie subculture that they mm-hmm. didn't you know there wasn't much flower power going on in the bombed out streets of aston mm-hmm. um and then but the ultimate extension of that 
is with death metal, whereas Sabbath were influenced by kind of classic horror and hammer horror. And, you know, this is before the 70s occult horror stuff, really. Um, whereas death metal bands were influenced by the kind of video nasty gore exploitation films of the mm -hmm. early 80s. Um, so Possessed, Morbid Angel, um, uh, Obituary, Cannibal Corpse were the, the, probably the most notorious, partly because Jim Carrey was a fan, and they have, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the covers are incredibly explicit and gory, and their song titles are, you know. So that's, so that's death metal, generally with a very deep, guttural vocal something inside me this microphone's no good for that but because you yeah. can't blow it in the same way um and um some of them very fast some of them obituary very slow and chuggy but and and lyrics about um death and decay and and murder and and uh and some of them kind of go on the sort of satanic side um and it's it it's bands trying to sound as heavy and as brutal as, and you know kind of scary in the way that black sabbath were doing but it's something that's kind of like um full force at the same time <clears throat> you have a development from punk uh, so punk in you know comes from uh from detroit really with the stooges and mc5 and then um and then through new york and then you have the british bands the pistols and the damned and um and then um, you get hardcore punk. So in the early 80s, bands take what they did, turn up the speed, and you have GBH exploited. Um, and uh, in the in America, you've got Minor Threat and Black Flag. And, um, and then we have Discharge. <clears throat> you then get um, crust punk. Incredibly political. They're anarchists. They are peaceniks. And these bands are um, really pushing a political agenda. They're taking what the Sex Pistols kind of loosely pointed at, but turned connected to, to a political agenda, but also turned up the speed, turned up the aggression. They're listening to bands like, you know, kind of Motorhead. And, and as you say, genres are porous. So all, they're all influenced by lots of different things. Then you get this ultimate extension of crust punk, which is grindcore. And this is Napalm Death in the early 80s. They formed in Liverpool. The early... There's a, there's a, a Napalm Death song on... Um, a crass compilation CD that sounds nothing like the band that we listen to now and a lot like a lot of the other crust punk. Mm. Um, and they had a, a kind of revolving door of members. So by the time they did their first album, Scum, um, none of the original members of Napalm Death are in Napalm oh, Death. Oh, wow, really? Okay. Yeah, but also on the second side of Scum, so there's two sides, there's only one member that's on the first side. Wow. <laughs> which is Mick Harris, who's the drummer. He's the guy that coined the term gr grindcore. Uh, Mick Harris, um, he invented the blast beat. Yeah. So, so um, crust bands had a D beat, which is motorhead influenced. Um, the blast beat is um, like essentially 32 notes on the snare and double bass drumming. Yeah. So, so either two bass drums, again, Motorhead popularized that. There were jazz bands that did it before, but as with everything. Um, <laughs> and so you've got this on the, on the, on the bass yeah. drums and this, and, and the snare matching those drum beats. So then you go from this kind of almost slightly groovy, catchy crust punk to grindcore, which becomes the ultimate expression of speed. But then what happens is Napalm Death start listening to death metal. They're seen as traitors by a lot of people in the grindcore scene. Um, 
and death metal bands start incorporating the blast beats of grind mm-hmm. gore and at this point the the distinction between the genres just starts to diminish but then what you have is where the map becomes the territory and this happens a lot in heavy metal where as soon as a genre is defined so thrash is a really good example as soon as you define what thrash is you get bands who go let's be a thrash band and they copy the template and they fit within the kind of borders of that genre and that happened with grindcore and death metal mm. so then you get people using this portmanteau death grind mm-hmm. to describe what carcass are doing carcass got a lot more melodic because again these are the bands that originate genres are often really restless mm-hmm. and and they they very often will that's why members leave and they get dissolution because they've originated a genre and they go we've done that let's move on to something mm-hmm. else you know because also metalheads are like taxonomists mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so retrospectively people start to coin these portmanteau terms to uh find a more precise mm. taxonomy of what these genres are um i mean there's there's a band called uh cattle decapitation which is uh, yeah 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 which they they talk about um th- th- this link between environmental led ethical veganism so that band you know cattle decapitation a lot of their lyrics are about basically reimagining what we do to animals as doing to human you know as doing yeah. to humans so that's yeah, so yeah. all of the kind of gore and everything that goes along with that which is very it's very easy to as a non-metal person it's very easy to sort of misunderstand and and or, or find funny or find you know a bit baffling is um is is it's got quite a serious intent it's an interesting link isn't it because that, that that is that is a very very commonly the case like you know my yeah. any any of my sort of metal Head friends are very often the, the sweetest, most gentle vegan <laughs> types that I, yeah, that I know. You know, yeah, and absolutely. that's that's a. I think people find that a bit uh, unusual sometimes. But I think there's I think there's a reason for that, and it's mm-hmm. you know I'm I I got any anger I had any residual anger I had in my system I got out at the Cavalera gig on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Bloodstock, which is probably my favourite festival in the UK, if you compare there's there's no aggro at Bloodstock. Yeah, believe it or not, yeah. I've actually played Bloodstock with right. <laughs> with, with a with a, a five piece jazz right. playing play, playing metal covers. But that's a whole other story. Yeah, we do sort of get out of system, and and the sense of humour again is is underrated. Napalm yeah. Death, no, that's a silly name. Yeah, I mean, Napalm yeah. Death have actually just put out a t-shirt that's got a, a unicorn and a rainbow and the napalm death font in that um i think it's cooper like the garfield font yeah <laughs> they, they know they know what they're doing you they know, know they, yeah. Um, yeah thanks that's an amazing summary if i've got time every episode i try and do a very um with with many apologies to the people who actually make this music and very really like <laughs> i try and do a kind of bastardized demo uh okay. of, of what my understanding of that music is yeah so i just i've just sent you uh the track i just well for, what's, what's your reaction first of all i think it's great i think you've i think you've, I think you've done a really really good job um, oh, thanks. i think the i think the bass the bass is slightly too funky yeah <laughs> but then yeah I, I don't i generally don't listen to bass um the drums are really good drums are really spot on yeah and um, a, an awful lot of grind bands will use a drum machine right um, really so, yeah 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 um so, i mean this is the the wonderful thing about metal is the, is, is the it's so broad and and people's different approaches to um and it constantly gets reinvented so mm. the, i mean most 
like an awful lot of technical death metal bands now um, will program their drums but they'll program them so they sound like real drums. What, right. what they're copying. So, yeah. so just sorry to interrupt, but just mm. to say when you when you say process, uh, uh, when you say program their drums, what what that means is rather than using a live drummer, they'll mm. they'll program in the computer, right? So, yeah. they'll, but they'll they'll use real drum recordings, so real drum sounds of each drum. But then they'll program in the computer because often, I guess, because very few drummers can play that fast or that intensely. Well, it, it's to, it's not to do with speed; it's to do with accuracy. Mm. Um, and you know, when you're building, when you're building a recording, um, it's just much easier for them to, you know, you get it, you get it accurate, for, you know, on the on the grid. So when you've got your um, your program that you're making music on, it's got a grid on it, and you just literally put the drum in where you want it. Um, and then, but then what you have to do is you have to make it sound like a real drummer. You have to knock those slightly off the grid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and have yeah, that kind yeah. of push and pull what the drums are doing sounds really really good um and there's that funny thing where you in a lot of extreme music you kind of want to make it sound less professional <laughs> in order to yeah. make it sound more authentic or raw or heavy i mean the second wave of black metal was a reaction against the popularity and what they saw as the commercialism of death metal so we've got the so the, the drums and that and again coming back to what that uh is described mm -hmm. as that style of drumming with the with the double kick drum pedal, so all that stuff, and the snare playing like that as well. That's called blast beats, right? And that's a big feature of this. Yeah, absolutely. But the other thing, the other interesting thing is a lot of these bands live will use drum triggers. So instead of just miking up the drums and hearing the sound of the drum being hit, the drum has a sensor on it, and that will trigger a sample of a recorded drum beat. And that, particularly on, particularly, I mean, it's something I hate the sound of triggered drums live because it sounds inorganic. Yeah. But that that's the sound that people are after. That really, really consistent, like double bass and pedal, and yeah, it's this weird thing of like make it sound authentic and natural, and then make it sound really perfect. And then make it sound a bit imperfect, and then live you make it sort of sound super. It's you know, yeah, it's it's really awesome. constant. And there's a and there's a backlash against that stuff. So we've got the drums there, and then the bass. You're saying is too funky. I think it's too funky. Yeah, yeah too funky. <laughs> I can't resist the funk. Um, and then uh, and there's a bit of guitar later on, but yeah, it's just trying to get that that sound right. Did, would you? We were talking earlier. Would, would you be up for putting some vocals on it? I'll definitely because that's obviously on. what it's missing. Because yeah, you know, that's... yeah, I will try to do a few different types of vocal over it. So I'll do the ah, guttural amazing. death growl, and I'll do because um, so there's the high the high scream, yeah, and then also yeah. the guttural. But um, that's that's the that's that that kind of guttural thing is the is the style of singing that I associate with this. Having listened to it this week, that yeah. seems to be really like where yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, where it's at, you know, that. and then they put little, but then they put little accents of the high bit in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Accented screams. But also, it's that thing, isn't it? Like you know, like the the shorthand for death metal and black metal is death metal is low vocals and black metal is high vocals. But then there's at the gates who have very high vocals, you know, right, who are right, a Swedish right. death metal band. Um, is that because the most metal thing of all is doing the opposite of what you're supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I would act. I'd probably argue the most metal thing of all is sticking rigidly to a genre. <laughs> okay. Right. 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 Okay. Um, but um, but yeah, what you want with guitars? You you want um, what's called tremolo picking, which is similar to the blast beat. Yeah. So um, to do it on my acoustic, so um, it, it sort of. Yeah. 
that sort of uh, thing. Uh, whereas with thrash metal, like Metallica, well, the originators, it's and Slayer, it's downstrokes. So you think Master of Puppets? My downstrokes aren't very fast at the moment, but that. Power chords, so um, it's a fifth chord. So down a little bit black metal, but um, yeah, sounds so that's amazing. What, that's, that's what you're after. Uh, Great. All right. Well, lovely. Thank. Well, thanks. I'm glad that I wasn't miles off. It's always a bit. No, of no, a risk. no. I think you've, I think you got really close. It's um, yeah. It's always a bit. You know, it's, I, I always say about about this stuff is I always try not to claim any sort of authenticity, but just as an outsider to. It was the same with Mbanga last week, where it's like mm. obviously I am not from this culture, but uh, you know, but I. Yeah, yeah. But just try by try as an outsider trying to get into something it's quite a good route in to, to discover a, the different aspects of it. It's a great way to explore what defines a genre is try and make yeah. it. Absolutely. It's, you know, exactly. in that just, um, you gain, so Hendrix is the artistic love of my life. And mm. as I, as I'm becoming a better guitarist, I'm becoming closer to being able to play his stuff. And I am just enjoying it so much more because you mm. inhabit the music. And it's like, we were talking about right at the beginning of music, you know, music is about kind of, playing it and enjoying it and you know like well, not just being the audience i think i think something that that this this show and that like everything that I, I try and do in this world uh like the live show and stuff it, it comes from is and this is probably from too many years of working with scientists and stuff but hmm. there's that there's a brilliant quote from the physicist uh richard feynman which i'm gonna um get wrong but it's as along the lines of what an artist says to him i i can appreciate a flower more than you can as a physicist because right. i can draw it and i can see its beauty and stuff hmm. and feynman says well no as a physicist uh, or a scientist i can look at it and i can see that it's beautiful and i can appreciate that but then i also what i find beauty is the what i find beautiful is the photosynthesis i can mm -hmm. understand that you know the micro microorganisms that live in that are really mm -hmm. beautiful in their own way and so basically by deepening your understanding of a thing it it gives you a route into understanding uh, a bigger proportion of of, of what that is the totality yeah. of its beauty rather than just a particular aspect rather than the kind of you know from a distance you, you drill down into it and i think the same is true for music I, I the more i've learned about stuff over the years the, the more love i've had for it i think i think that's absolutely right uh, so um i think the music emerges completely naturally and inexorably from hum from the human brain mm -hmm. um and and then music theory is it all you know for a long time just trying to catch up with what that is and that's exactly. kind of what, that's what you're doing here you're kind of going well, what 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 is it what are they doing and I, I'm always really fascinated by the socio-economic background to why genres emerge. Mm -hmm. And the reason, the reason, um, grindcore happened is because of the venues that are available in Birmingham. Mm. Mm. There were, there were, there were some great venues. The mermaid, I think was the big one. There were venues that let people, let people put bands on for really, really, really cheap. Last, episode i was talking about pub gigs and about how important these grassroots venues are yeah to to music scenes uh, all over the world but you know taking this country these small small venues where bands as you say that whole genres can develop because there are venues to to yeah to play that that aren't charging through the nose and that yeah. aren't kind of big massive commercialized uh sponsored venues like the o2 or whatever you mm -hmm. know they're, they're they're small grassroots things that create a scene and that goes on then to create 
if you're talking about the commercial side of it, you know, that goes on to create huge commercial success for other people yeah, and, yeah. and and more importantly evolves genres and evolves culture. But so I think it's so important that the grassroots venues are, are protected and supported as much as possible. A hundred percent. Yeah. Small gigs are an essential part of our cultural life. And there's exactly. that thing, isn't there? There's like the argument that people put forward, like you've said, is, you know, well, the big bands come from there, but most of the bands I listen to don't get big. <laughs> exactly. So it's not, it's not, so yeah. it's exactly. So I'm always very careful to say, well, there is a commercial argument for it, but that's also, that's sort of missing the point. Yeah, there is yeah. a commercial argument to say, well, where else is Ed Sheeran going to come from if he doesn't have a chance to develop his career in small venues, which is definitely true. But more importantly, small venues are like the lifeblood of, of communities across yeah. the country and yeah, across the absolutely. world. And so, so uh, yeah, anyway, that's just a, another little plug for small venues. <laughs> but thanks so much. That was really uh, fascinating. That was really fascinating. I learned Absolute so pleasure, much mate. about that. And, yeah, I'm really excited to hear your vocals this afternoon. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks I'll again, Andrew. Thank great. you for having me. I'll talk to you soon, mate. Take care. See you soon. Take care. Now, Steve in the studio again here. Now, before I play this track out in its entirety, you've heard bits of it already underneath the interview, but before I play the whole thing, I just wanted to say thanks again to Andrew for some incredible vocals. I mean, honestly, how they get their voice to sound like this, I will never know. And more importantly, how they can speak afterwards. Um, But also, the little Easter egg is that the lyrics that Andrew chose to set this piece of death grind to are... Quite special. They are lyrics by one of the great poets. So while you're listening to this beautiful, soothing, melodic bit of death grind, have a think about which of the great poets you think may be the inspiration for the lyrics. And I will tell you at the end. Okay, I can reveal exclusively that the lyrics to that piece of Death Grind were from The Whitson Weddings by Philip Larkin. That's right, pick that up. 
I think Andrew should really be doing poetry festivals with that sort of style of delivery. So there we are. The Whitson Weddings by Philip Larkin, set to my death grind beats. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> The time has come to pick the genre for next episode. What am I going to spend the next two weeks listening to? Okay, here we go. Pop the list into the randomlists.com. Press go. Okay. Emo pop. Emo pop. That's what I'm going to be doing next episode. Okay, I'm going to be doing a deep dive into emo pop for the next two weeks. Wish me luck. Um, and I'm going to be reporting back and maybe trying to make some sort of emo pop noises uh, on next episode. So tune in for that. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks' time as normal. So that is Thursday, the 30th of November. Um, but meanwhile, if you've enjoyed today's episode and you haven't listened to the others yet, do go back and have a listen to uh, the others. We've covered a lot of fascinating ground, I think. Very varied stuff we've gone through um, with some brilliant guests. So do go back and check those out. Meanwhile, thanks again for all the support. It would really, really help me out if you could rate and review the show. Nice reviews and ratings really do help at this early stage of a show's life. And it shows an enormous amount of work to produce but I love doing it and I want as many people as are interested in listening to be able to listen. So please do share far and wide. Um, you know what to do, all the usual places, socials at Steve Pretty. So feel free to drop me a line there. Or better still, I have a mailing list, uh, which is on my website, which is www.stevepretty.com. And you can sign up to the mailing list and there'll be all sorts of interesting stuff coming up through that. So that'd be really helpful if you fancy doing that, if you've enjoyed the show. One thing to plug, of course, is my Wilton show. I'm doing a show at the brilliant Wilton's Music Hall in London on the 20th of January. Things are really hotting up for that. I'm just in talks with uh, an incredible new addition to the bill that night. It's going to be a really great night in, I think, one of the, the best venues in the UK, if not Europe. So it's called Wilton's Music Hall, 20th of January. Tickets available from the Wilton's website or via my website. So please do head there, pick up some tickets. Honestly, uh, you won't want to miss out. It's going to be a lot of fun surprises, live podcast recording, live gig. Some of my uh, friends and colleagues from Hackney Colliery Band playing some HGB stuff. Some new music from myself and Valeria the Harpist you heard from a couple of weeks ago. It's going to be a really great night, so please do sign up for that. Meanwhile, it just remains me to thank once again Abney Park Cemetery for having me for the Remembrance gig and letting me record there. Um, and also, of course, my brilliant guests Andrew O'Neill and also Nicole Cassandra Smith. The theme is by me and Hackney Colliery Band and the brilliant Angelique Kidjo. Right, thank you very much for listening. Do spread the word, do rate and review, all of that stuff. Really, really helpful. Thank you very much and see you next time. Bye.